0: If it's happening
1: now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Willerskin, booking the guests. In the newsroom, Donna Weeks and Dave Woodard. It's Municipal Election Day in Ontario. Get out and exercise your right to vote. If you don't vote, you can't complain. Here's... There you go. Good afternoon, it is Hamilton Today, I'm Scott Thompson, the gang's all here, and uh, then m- uh, more so, because of course it is uh, election day here in the Hammer, as it is municipally across uh, Ontario. Obviously it is a voting day, get out and exercise your right, if you haven't already, you've got until 8 o'clock tonight to do so, uh, and again, as uh, Kurt said, you can't, uh, you can't complain if you don't vote, and they often say that at the municipal level, that's really where where you do have the most opportunity uh, to instigate change. So there you go. So I uh, got to eight o'clock tonight. Good way to get out there. Say hi to the neighbors and uh, cast your ballot. But we're going to uh, start off right away and go to uh, Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief, Global News, because uh, there's some breaking news. Remember, everybody was chatting about why, why isn't Doug Ford and uh, Sylvia Jones, the former so, uh, Solicitor General, testifying at uh, the Emergency Act Inquiry. Well, that's all about to change because they've been summoned and uh colin Demello is with us now colin thanks for the time hope you're doing well i'm well thanks thanks for having me wow this sammy is getting more juicier by the minute holy smoke so what happened here how of a, how come all of a sudden the justice has decided now he's going to call them in to testify
2: yeah, well, I'll take you through the series of events. Last week, we heard a lot of very compelling testimony coming from Ottawa city officials that they were really frustrated by the Ford government's response. They basically indicated that you know they kept trying to get the Ford government to participate in trilateral meetings about what was happening at um, with the Ottawa occupation and how to resolve it, and that the government kept kind of rebuffing them so much so that the uh, City of Ottawa declared a state of emergency in order to compel the Ford government to also declare a state of emergency and do something. and so as a result of that, there were a lot of questions. well, why aren't we hearing directly from Premier Doug Ford? Exactly last week, the premier was asked this question: "Have you been asked to testify?" And the premier said, "No, I have not been asked." So the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and a number of other groups, they wrote a letter to the commissioner saying you know, there's a lot of compelling evidence that the government of Ontario could give, we would like for you, the commission, to call the premier to actually testify. And today, there was a letter that was sent from the commission to the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. And this is kind of where we're finding a lot of these details. So the commission says on September 19th, lawyers for the commission requested an interview with the premier and Minister Sylvia Jones, who served as the Solicitor General during the Ottawa occupation. They say that request was refused. They then renewed that request a number of times, and all other requests to interview the Premier and the minister were also refused. And so they felt if that wasn't going to happen, they said, let's ask them to testify voluntarily in front of the commission. And the response they got from the government was, that they were not going to, quote, for the moment. So as a result of that, they said, the commission said, you know, they hoped that the premier and the minister would voluntarily testify. They hoped that they would come and speak with the commission's lawyers voluntarily, but they have not. And so they're issuing a summons to compel Premier Doug Ford and Solicitor General Solicitor Jones, who served as the Solicitor General at the time, to actually testify under oath in Ottawa.
1: So, uh, what do we hope to find out from them? Any idea where this will go once they're there? So obviously, have... obviously, you're speculating, but uh, so now what would you ask? So
2: before we even get there, there's a question of whether they're actually even going to testify. Uh, the Ford government is now saying that it is going to seek a judicial review to set aside the summons and receive a stay uh, under the grounds that the summons is inconsistent with members' parliamentary privilege. So uh, they're basically making the argument that Ontario worked with uh, the commission. They provided a lot of documents, cabinet documents as well. And they said that, you know, that should suffice and that the premier has parliamentary privilege and that an MPP being an MPP might not be required to testify. So this is going to be an interesting legal battle going forward to see whether Doug Ford can actually testify whether this inquiry can compel him to testify. If he does appear in front of the commission, there are a laundry list of questions uh, about why they chose to uh, not participate in these trilateral meetings um, and, and you know, whether there was any political motivation, as the inquiry has been hearing, uh, behind not wanting to participate uh, in these meetings as well. So, We're a long ways out from them actually testifying. There has to be a court battle before the the testimony has to be given. And my understanding is that the commission actually has a very limited time frame um, for them to actually do all of their work. So in effect, Doug Ford might be trying to run out the clock
1: here. Man, this is like a, a case of whose job is this? Um, uh, does it change what we've heard so far in the sense that even today we're hearing just you know uh, a conflict between the, uh, the the police and the hierarchy there, the OPP and such. Because uh, clearly there were issues between the OPP and the OPS. Can the prime minister, or sorry, can the premier shed light on that?
2: Well, the pre- He may or may not be able to, with some operational details, uh, the Premier might not necessarily be able to offer that much detail. I I think what the Commission might be trying to understand here is why did the Ontario government, um, you know, why was it reluctant to react at the very outset of this entire Ottawa occupation? So there were multiple days the Ottawa City officials had testified that they had been looking for help or assistance from um, Ontario right? The chain of command. They have to go to the province of Ontario first. The province of Ontario can, can then go to the federal government to request the RCMP. And, and th- that is kind of the crux of the question. What did the Ontario government do or what did it not do in those crucial days? Um, and, and what kind of support did it lend or what kind of support did it not lend and why? And if the premier's name is consistently invoked during these hearings, You know, it was a feeling, at least from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, that the premier might want to defend himself at these proceedings to actually clarify what it is and is not that they did. Uh, A key example here is that Sylvia Jones had claimed there were 1,500 OPP officers on the ground. And city officials in Ottawa had actually said, no, that number was roughly in the number of 50 to 100, not 1,500. So there are obviously... So many questions for the Ontario government, but now it seems not only did they, you know, initially the optics where they were refusing to participate mm. in the process during the actual Ottawa occupation, we now know from the commission they refused to participate in any kind of interviews, declined the invitations to appear voluntarily, and are now actively fighting the actual appearance itself. It does lead you to ask that question, what are they hiding?
1: All right. Uh, Colin DeMello with us, Queens Park uh, uh, reporter, Bureau Chief, sorry. And make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. All right. Uh, uh, sad to see this. And the sad part is, is I, I get older. I, I hear more colleagues or friends that are doing this. Uh, but after decades of journalism, uh, many right here with the uh, Hamilton Spectator, Steve Bust, is readying to retire and has a great column today uh, in the spec, sort of uh, a retrospective and um, and, and how he got to where he is. And it's uh, it's 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 an interesting story, to say the least. Steve Bust with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
3: I am Scott. I'm trying to get used to this new life. I'm not sure uh, uh, it would be terrible if I failed at retirement. I think that would be pretty embarrassing. But, uh. <laughs> That's
1: right. Yeah. How do you recover from that? What do you do then? I guess go back to work. I don't know. So, are you officially? Are you out now? Are you done? Or is you're still you're readying?
3: Well, I, I, I guess my last day technically is October 31st, but I'm, uh, All I'm right. on vacation, so. Uh, I guess that's a never ending you're, vacation now.
1: You're slowly easing into it, as they say. So why now?
3: Oh, that's a great question. You know, I've been thinking about it for a couple of years. Um, you know, uh, whether it happens at age, I'm, I'm, I just turned 63 and uh, you know, so it's, it's a little early, but you know, I, I struggled with it for a long time and, I thought you know what I, I don't want to be one of those people that um, retires and then you know there's nothing that, you know they run out of runway and so right. I thought you know this this might be the time to go I've, I've done a lot of things I've, I've been happy with uh, you know a lot of the projects that I've been able to work on and and it just I don't know it just kind of seemed like the right time and um, you know it, you really struggle with it because a lot of my identity is wrapped up in me hmm being Steve Buse, the journalist. And, you know, it's a difficult thing to try to let that go and that no longer becomes part of your life. It's kind of like sports when, you know, you're no longer on the team and the the team keeps going without you and, and you just become that guy that used to play on the team and, people look at you five down years down the road and go, oh, didn't you used to play on that team? And, <laughs> so And You, you got to be okay with, I guess, letting that go. And I, I, I guess I came to the realization that, you know, whether it happens at 63 or 65 or 75, it has to happen someday. And, yeah. um, you know, oddly enough, I, just as I was kind of getting into this, uh, a friend of mine passed away uh, mm-hmm. unexpectedly and in a way that was kind of like the as sad as it was it was also that kick in my bum to say you know what Mm. um it's
1: time my condolences post-pandemic what role does that play in all of this are we thinking at things are we looking at things differently now
3: not really for me so much Uh, I mean uh you know the working from home part was interesting um for me it was a little bit more about my personal work situation so I, I had People probably wondered why they hadn't seen my name for some time. and um, for about 15 months, I was seconded to the Toronto Star, and I was working with the Toronto Star's investigations team up until uh, about May uh, of this year. And that came to an end. My secondment was over, and it just kind of seemed like that was the right way to kind of wind down and and maybe ride off into the sunset.
1: Uh, from brain surgeon to the media, of course I'm exaggerating, but you were (laughs) heading, you were heading off in that direction and clearly, you know, had, had what it takes to do that uh, as far as what's between the years. Uh, How do you explain, uh, obviously a passion for what you ended up doing?
3: You know, it's, it's, you know, life is a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, we all have stories of how something happened to us unexpectedly, how we just fell into something, or, or you know, some decision that you make at one point that you don't think has any bearing on anything else, and and your life just sort of unfolds a certain way. You know, it, I sent out a, a package of stuff on a, as a lark, and it landed on the desk of the sports editor of the Sioux Star the day somebody quit. You know, a, a day either side of there, and and I may never have had that opportunity. I might never have gone into this field. You know, I sometimes wonder, you know, if I hadn't left the University of Missouri, you know, what would have happened if I'd have stayed just a bit longer and maybe got over the homesickness? You know, how would my life have been different? You know, and, you know, it's fun to think about it, but you can't dwell on it too much. You know, life is just a, a series of these sort of random things that happen to you that shape, you know, shape your future. And, and uh, you know, once I fell into it, you know, the really funny thing is, if you'd have gone back to 1983, when I started in Sault Ste. Marie, and if you'd have asked, you know, 26-year-old Steve Bust, you know, what what would be the pinnacle of your life? What could, you know, I would have told you that if I could have someday been the sports editor of the Hamilton Spectator, I would have died a happy person, you know. Hmm. And that would have been the ultimate, like that was, you know, I, I was born in Hamilton, grew up in Burlington. And boy, if I could have ever reached the summit of being the sports editor of the Hamilton Spectator, wow you know, my life would be complete, you know, and and, uh, so it's, you know, it's just funny how your life takes these twists and turns.
1: Steve Buse with us, soon to be a retired journalist with the Hamilton Spectator, still around for a while, and I have a feeling uh, we won't be able to keep him quiet. You always have a voice here. Anything you want to talk about, you just let us know. Uh, (laughs) Steve, I'm sure we'll chat again, but best of luck in retirement and always a pleasure to read your stuff.
3: Well, thanks so much, Scott, and, and thanks for all your support over the years. I've always enjoyed our uh, our interactions.
1: Beautiful weekend, wasn't it? Did you have a good time? Great. Uh, so uh, it's nice to have the sports on in the background, you know, uh, football, whatever, baseball, whatever you're you're watching right now, which is pretty much everything. <laughs> and so, um, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a motorhead, so I like watching the race and, and such. And, and then I realized that the uh, Formula One race was in Austin this weekend and just happened to be flipping around. And, um, you know, I record everything, whether it's this, NASCAR, doesn't matter. So uh, long story short, I ended up watching um, the F1 race instead of NASCAR, which I know right now has this man rolling over laughing. Eric Thomas is with us, Raceline Radio. Uh, you can hear him Sunday uh, right here on CHML. Uh, Eric... Uh, w- yeah, and then, it, and then as I'm watching, I'm realizing th- this was the first race they did in Austin. Then they added Miami, and then I hear they're going to add one in Vegas next year. So that's yep. three. Yep. How did we go from. You, you know, people not even knowing what this was because we don't really well. I shouldn't say that, but certainly no races in North America. Then all of a sudden, there's a Netflix show, and now there's three. I mean, does it take all of the credit here? How, how do you explain well, this? Partly, partly. Let's 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 uh, let's not forget that part of the foundation of
4: this, and and this is the Canadian part of it, is there's been a Canadian Grand Prix, an F1 race in Canada since the 1960s. Okay, and there has been a U.S. Grand Prix almost as long. It has changed addresses. It used to be at Watkins Glen, New York, through the town way back mm-hmm. in the fifties. Of course, they built the road course there. It went to that for a while. Uh, then it switched to places like Las Vegas for a while, and was in the parking lot at Caesar's Palace. It was.
1: In <laughs> I remember Vegas. seeing it at Mosport uh, back yeah, in yeah, the well, early seventies.
4: Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you know what the Canadian I said: the Canadian Grand Prix has been active in, in the Canadian sports scene you know, since the nineteen sixties. So it's 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 been there and been big in Vegas, of course it's been the parking lot of Caesars Palace, it was Long Beach, California for the longest time. Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and now of course they, they've raced what you just saw at the Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas. They have added another race in Miami, Florida, and next season they're going to be racing down the strip in Las Vegas, which is amazing. But the 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 idea being is that they're racing where they sell cars. That's why Mercedes is involved yeah. Alfa Romeo is involved, Ferrari is involved, um, you know, Honda with Red Bull, and, and Aston Martin. You can go down the grid wherever they sell cars. That's why there's races in the Middle East and the Far East, and in, certainly in Europe and, and in Japan and places where they sell a lot of automobiles. The Netflix series has helped boost the popularity of it, but there's always been a very strong fan base for Formula One in this country. It's just that now you're seeing people exposed to this series realizing how much drama there is and, and what superhuman things these guys can do and what the drama is like and what the pressure is like away from the racetrack with very colorful people to that point of entertainment, and they just translate that to the racetrack. And if you saw that race in Austin, Texas, there was an enormous crowd at that race. Conversely, watching one of our NASCAR races, they don't show you much of the grandstands anymore because there's a lot of open spaces there. So it's just a swing in popularity. It's almost as Formula One's popularity has become somewhat of a fad. And I think a lot of it will stick because you've got to attract new people to come into your tent yeah. and get them to stay. And I think that Formula One has done a very good job of that.
1: What is one doing that the other one's not, do you think, at this point?
4: Well, um, marketing themselves, getting themselves exposed. IndyCar has a similar Netflix series in the works. Um, I know that they're talking about that on the NASCAR level. NASCAR's problem, if it's a small P problem, is the fact that you and I know well, full with these guys, full well, with these guys, that they are very, very, uh, I don't want to say stubborn, but slow to change. Now, they have made some changes, change of the cars, you know what I mean? I have been chirping for years about the fact the races are too long. I don't like the way they manipulate the finishes, but they're not the only game in town anymore, and I don't think they can rely on that. I mean, the NASCAR used to be huge. IndyCar was bigger than that. They traded places. But I think NASCAR has been a little bit sedate in terms of getting new eyeballs and getting new fans exposed to their product, while Formula One has done an amazing job. Getting their product exposed to people who weren't interested in it before, but they are now. And I where think that's does the main reason why?
1: Where does this leave Indy, and or does it generate more? I mean, many have said many have said, you know there not to be one. It can be many of them.
4: Of course, they can be. IndyCar is feeding off of this. Um, in a, in a big way, their ratings for the TV uh, their TV ratings, pardon me, for this past season were pretty darn good and pretty encouraging. Then you get guys that are migrating across, like Roman Grosjean mm-hmm. ran an IndyCar this year. There's talk of Michael Andretti having a Formula One team on the grid in the coming season. So there's you know with the three races in the continental US and still the Canadian Grand Prix, you know in in Montreal that has really helped in the popularity and. NASCAR kind of needs to uh, modernize themselves in terms of, you're not the only game in town anymore. We don't need races that last three to four hours anymore. You just don't need to do it. That's one of the things I really think is part of why Formula One is so good with people in terms of the popularity with short expense uh, a- Attention span theaters, what I'm trying to spit out here, is the fact that their races are normally done in about an hour and 45 minutes. You don't need a three-hour race. You don't need 365 laps at Las Vegas. You need that like you need a hole in the head. You know I've been (laughs) chirping about this for a long, long time. You can make the point in half the damn distance. If IndyCar can run their races in two hours, if Formula One can run their races in two hours, there's no excuse for NASCAR taking three to four. It's old fashioned thinking, and I think people just aren't going to sit in the pews and watch that anymore. Some still will, and it's still very popular, and it's still very good, and it's still very competitive, but they need to streamline things. And I think they need to start thinking about shortening their shows. And you're already seeing some of that by talking about going to smaller tracks where the racing is better and getting away from these one-and-a-half-mile cookie-cutter tracks where the racing can be pretty dull. So I think NASCAR just needs to sort of push down the throttle on the modernization pedal if they want to get their numbers a bit better.
1: There you go. All right. You can hear more Sunday nights, uh, eight o'clock. Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network, heard right here on CHML talking about the rise of F1. All right, Eric. Thanks so much. Be well.
4: Scooter, always
1: enjoy these. Let's do some more soon. All right. Uh, we, we were, uh, bringing in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, at McMaster University, of course, to talk about municipal election day, and we're going to do that. But, uh, as, uh, you know, we're, as we're dialing the phone, it, it seems that uh, now breaking news and being summoned to appear at the Emergencies Act Inquirer, inquiry Premier Doug Ford and former Solicitor, uh, solicitor General uh, Sylvia Jones. Henry Jasick, Professor of Political Science at Mac, is with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing very well today. So before we get to the municipal election, uh, here we have another log on the fire. What are your thoughts now? This is going to get juicy.
5: Well, I mean, I I thought this was going to be happening because the you've had a number of people who you know basically have uh, said that uh, you know that the uh, the that the uh, conservative the government in Ontario and the and the premier uh, has not was not very helpful for a while up uh, in getting the uh, the convoy issue solved uh, earlier this year and uh, there, so there were some you know some statements that were pretty tough on him and i i think it was unfair if he didn't get his chance to uh, rebut them
1: uh that is a good point uh what do you think we're going going to hear what do you think he's going to add to this and of course it's all speculation at this point but what questions should he be asked
5: well uh well the thing is i mean first of all about the the truth of what the comments that were made by the mayor and uh i uh, and also by uh, an email that the the premier the prime minister had uh, about him not wanting to join in conversations uh, you know and decisions to to deal with the situation so i, I think that'll be the first thing the the commission's going to want to hear uh the other, what he, on his you know to protect himself uh, in a way uh you know is he can point to that there are uh, some people who are in the o, leaders in the OPP who said uh you know the there was just a lot of confusion in the yeah. uh, um, Ottawa uh, police force and that, you know, they were reluctant to sort of bring a lot of people in because they didn't know if there was, was a plan. They were they were not treated, you know, as, as, as part of the team. And so he might say that, yeah, I, I didn't want to jump in here when when seems, things seem to be all messed up at the police level.
1: Uh, what about now fighting not to appear, uh, trying not to, seeing if there's a, a legal way out of having to go? Why do that?
5: Well, I think that I think that would be a mistake. I think that, you know, when you do that, people assume that you're trying to hide something. Yeah. And I, I, ju- I just don't think that's wise for a politician to do. No. I mean, he, he you know, at this point, he's far away from an election. I think he ought to basically say, this is my position, this is what happened, and just basically yeah. they should just lay it out. And if people don't like it, they don't like it. But I I would I would encourage him to do that. I think it's in his interest to do that.
1: How messy do you think this is going to get, Henry?
5: Well, uh, you know, there might be a little here. As, you know, there's a lot of people who made mistakes here. We, we know that. They all, you know, they, they, they had a lot of information that to go on. They should have acted on it. I just think we they were caught up in the maybe the same sort of thing that happened down in Washington. Uh they were just shocked with the how, you know, how how well organized the protesters were. And uh you know, and they they shouldn't have been, but they were and uh so, you know, they weren't as well organized and uh you know, they have to own up to that and say, "Listen, we got to be better organized the next time." That that's the lesson and how and how that will be done. And there has to be, I think, uh, generally a federal, provincial, and city, you know, uh, committee set up. Whenever you have that kind of problem, and the city police force is overwhelmed, yeah. as it was here, you you got to have that sort of three three groups in there saying, okay, how how are we going to fix this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's move to the municipal election. A lot of times not doesn't really get a lot of attention, uh not necessarily on people's radar, but this one especially because uh there's going to be a new mayor cuz Fred Eisenberger's not running for reelection. Uh it's been a pretty interesting uh and you think it has more people's eyes because there will be a replacement at the mayor's chair.
5: Yeah, I would think so. Uh the, the you know the uh, advance vote was was quite high. Uh, you know, more than a lot of people thought. And there was a number of people who said in the beginning, oh, this is going to be a boring election. I was never one of those because essentially I thought with the three leading candidates, they all had their own constituencies. They were all good campaigners, I thought. And I thought they were just going to bring people out. And I think that's what's happened.
1: All right, we'll be watching, of course, and listening tonight for uh, the results as they come in after uh, 8 p.m. Henry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay, same to you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll
4: delve into the issue until he is.
1: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We remember the Premier was introducing, uh, several weeks ago, the Strong Mayors Act, which was going to, I guess, affect at this point uh, the mayors of Ottawa and Toronto uh, and give them more powers. And the whole reason behind this was to ease up the logjam and the the griddle Block that happens among large city councils uh, trying to get housing built and built uh, within the city limits uh, is it a good idea it's funny when I talk to mayors who uh, were not running or who uh, I think for the exception of Tom Watson from Ottawa he didn't like it but or were in they thought yeah it's not a bad idea and those who are getting elected didn't think it was a good <laughs> idea so I guess it depends on whether you need it or not uh, what is it all about is it going to fly let's bring in Wayne Petrosi Professor Emeritus. Politics and Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Wayne, thanks for your time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you very much. So at first blush, what are your thoughts? Is this a good idea? Is it not a good idea? It really depends uh, on who you ask. What what are your thoughts?
6: I think what really matters, but we really know better when we see the details as to how this is going to work, as to how the province is going to, if you like, direct or provide authority to strong mayors uh, in in the areas around development and, and housing that they've been speaking to. I don't think we really know until we see the detailed regulations.
1: Uh, From what we understand, uh, obviously, um, we're trying to get uh, development built on city infields, city uh, land that's already there, not being used, not necessarily owned by the city. Uh, And then what happens is whenever these developments try to go through, there's nimbyism within uh, certain regions and such, and local councillors vote it down, play favours and such. Uh, Do you see see it solving that issue? Do you see it breaking those laws? Log jams.
6: Again, it's very hard to know if in fact it will accomplish that goal. I mean, let's take one of the examples you gave, infill. Uh, but as you'd say, most people many people would agree that infill development is is a is, is is a good way to go. The infrastructure is already there and can in most cases support what you 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 build on those infill properties. But although you and I both might agree, Scott, on that this is a good thing. We might have very different ideas on the ground when a proposal actually comes forward. Mm-hmm. So it, it's going to, in a sense, depend. To what extent does the province intend to try to micromanage, or does it intend to try to micromanage development in in these municipalities with where, where, with, with with strong mayors? And I'm not sure we we know the answer to that yet.
1: So, what should the details be? What should the groundwork be? What do, What are the questions we need answered before we can get to this stage?
6: Well, you know, as I said, it'd be really, really good thing to see the regulations pursuant to the legislation that has gone through uh, that, that is has is going through the legislature. There is a committee, and actually, at Queen's Park on statutory instruments that has the authority to review uh, uh, regulations pursuant to new legislation uh, that's gone through the house. Uh, I I do think that some kind of uh, transparency around the nature of those regulations will help, I think answer a lot of questions and, and clear up, I think some of the confusion that seems to be
1: out there. Will this speed up the process?
6: Well, again, if, if you if the province tries to micromanage through the municipal affairs minister, uh, directing strong mayors to agree to this, don't agree to that, it, it, I don't think it's going to it's not going to speed things up. If on the other hand, through its its regulatory authority, it, it provides some some clear direction to strong mayors, while leaving implementation and their interpretation uh, at the local level then it may very well. Uh,
1: and do you think this is about less government, not more? Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think people just want to see results. They just want to see things being moved, not necessarily locked in a quagmire.
6: Yeah, and that, that, that's a good way to put it, because depending upon how those regulations read, it could be go either way.
1: So what about
6: the response
1: to this? Uh, what is the next step, do you feel?
6: Well. Uh, While I I certainly agree, if if you're going to do this, do it as he suggested, try it out in a couple of municipalities first, see how it works. Uh, In a sense, test pilot it, do a pilot project, see if it works, see if it does speed things up, see if it does uh, get shovels in the ground in a shorter time frame than what we're used to uh, before going any further. Uh, that, That certainly, if you're going to go this way, that's the way to go. Uh, What I think needs to happen, though, is they just have to be a lot more clear as to precisely how they're going to be directing local governments in in, in this area through the mayor. And what the consequences are, by the way, what no one's talked about. So what happens if uh, a mayor decides not to follow the policy direction that has been communicated to him? However, that's going to happen through the municipal affairs minister through the premier's office I, i'm not sure yet what what pathway it's always going to follow uh, what happens if 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 a mayor doesn't uh, is, is there some kind of are there consequences uh, in on, under the legislation that are, will then be imposed on a mayor who doesn't go along and on, a, on a particular development proposal i have no idea
1: Well, I guess you always have the option not to use it. Um, But anyway, we'll have to leave it there. We're plumb out of time. Wayne Petrosi with us, Professor Emeritus Politics and Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University. Wayne, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you. One person who um, probably a little calmer than than most politicians these days is mayor uh, of uh, the city of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, who is not running in this election but is with us now. Mayor Fred, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
7: I am very well, Scott. Thank you. And thanks for the tune. Actually, he had, he asked me what tune I wanted to hear leading into this, and after he asked me and I didn't have an answer for him, I thought it's times like these. <laughs> there you go. So, great how do you,
1: all right, for sure. Um, what is different for uh, for you this day as opposed to last election day? Uh, w- what's it like for you um, not being on the trail?
7: Uh, it's been a little odd, to be honest. And, um, you know, I, I, I have to admit that I've had more anxiety on who wins and who loses uh, than I would have had uh, during my own campaign. If you're in the middle of it and you, you know what you've been doing and you know where you've been out and, you have a feel for you know what's coming potentially. Uh, being out of it, uh, I don't have a feel at all. So so that's a little different. But uh, you know that's that's all good. I'm not wearing a helmet, by the way. heard you mentioned putting your helmets on. I didn't think that uh, politics was a contact sport, nor was elections. But I uh, I am uh, I am uh, probably like most candidates now that are feeling let's just get this over with. So you know that's probably been uh, something that most candidates have been feeling for the last couple of days cuz uh, you know campaigning is uh, is a difficult arduous Task and uh, they've been at it, uh, you know, virtually full time for months now, and uh, certainly I'm sure they're looking forward to just seeing the end of it and then uh, hopefully a positive result. Of course,
1: obviously, when you're uh, running in the campaign, you can react to what's going on. You're 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 in the middle of it all and and establishing your platform and such. Yeah. When you're sitting on the sidelines like this, watching, and again, it's not like you're on the sidelines. You're still the mayor of the city of Hamilton. But do you, have you felt yourself, you know, wanting to stand up and go, well? Wait a sec. Uh, you know, I've been here a few years and that's not the way it is. It's more like this. Have you have you found yourself wanting to have your voice, even though, you know, you have to kind of sit on your hands for a bit?
7: Yeah, I've uh, I've been biting my tongue on many occasions, uh, Scott. You know, you, I mean, elections are you know trying to appeal to, you know, some of the things that either have occurred or are happening or not happening or whatever their perception is. Uh, You know, having been around a while, uh, you know, I I have a pretty good sense of what's accurate and what isn't. And uh, you know, to to hear some folks say that uh, you know the city is falling behind and that uh, we we could be so much better off when in fact we are so much better off. And you know, pretty proud of the way the city is and now today. And and, you know, there's uh, there's good kind of foundations to build on. So. I, uh, it's a little frustrating to hear some of the comments that people are throwing around out there, but uh, you know what? That's politics. Uh, uh, I'm a big boy, and uh, you know I can uh, I can certainly handle the criticism. I've had lots of it over the uh, the time that I've been in politics, and certainly uh, you know, those that are uh, here to criticize, fair fair enough. But uh, you know, some of you are going to have an opportunity to to make good on some of the things that you've been talking about, or to find out that uh, some of the things you've been talking about are way off base. So, uh,
1: you know, obviously with you're not running for re-election, that opens up the mayor's chair, which has made this race quite exciting and has drawn more attention. Why is it important for citizens to vote in municipal elections? Maybe think Many think the farther you get away, the lower down from, uh, from um, national to provincial to municipal uh, politics uh, that you don't have as much say why is it important for citizens to get out and vote in a municipal election
7: well i think quite the opposite scott i mean i think on the local level you have a heck of a lot more say and there's there's a you know a much greater direct impact and correlation between what's happening at the municipal level and and people's everyday lives and you know if we remind ourselves that all politics is local most people care about what's happening in their local community in their neighborhood on their street uh, in their area rec center or park, and they, uh, you know, have an unending focus on, on the municipal taxes, even though municipal taxes are the smallest portion of the overall tax load that people pay. Uh, so 50 percent of our overall taxes goes to the federal government, 40 percent goes to the province, 10 percent comes from the municipality. But the municipality actually identifies exactly where those monies are going, and you have a pretty good sense of how those monies are being spent. And so having your say now in terms of how that happens on some of the platforms that uh, some of the candidates have put out there is, uh, you know, much, much more impactful locally than it would be provincially or federal.
1: And also a great point for those that, uh, you know, want to give it a try and want to serve their community, their province, their country, whatever. It's a great way to get into this game, isn't it?
7: Yeah, never a waste of time, of course. You know, some people say, oh, I can't be bothered with that sort of thing. And, you know, I really admire people that step forward and put their name on the ballot for, for all the right reasons, if they if they do. You know they care about their community. They want it to be. Uh, they want it to be good, and they want to passionately get involved. That's a good thing. And whether you win or you lose, uh, it is a it is a positive experience from my perspective. I've I've both won and lost, and uh, on on both sides of the equation, it's had great great uh, personal benefit uh, as well as family benefit and community benefit. So you learn a lot about your city. You learn a lot about the people that are in it, and uh, that can't be a bad thing. And if you're successful then you get to learn even more about uh, what our city is all about. And I've, I personally have been blessed to been to have been mayor for 12 years and, uh, you know, able to see at so many different levels uh, in so many parts of our community, the community in action, uh, you know, every day and every, every week. And uh, I, I'm forever so impressed with how many people are working in our community that are not in politics trying to make our city better each and every day.
1: I remember talking to you, Mayor, when when times weren't as good as they are now, and they're certainly challenging coming out of a pandemic and such. um, But this was very much a city in transition for the last couple of decades. What is the biggest challenge for the new mayor uh, moving forward? What are some of the challenges for the new mayor running forward?
7: Well, there are some, some fiscal uh, headwinds coming our way uh, relative to, uh, to COVID. And, you know, we haven't had that covered off yet in terms of the federal commitment to help offset, uh, you know, 2022's uh, fiscal challenges. Uh, costs of everything have gone up. Uh, contracts, uh, you know, road construction contracts, any kind of contract has uh, gone up. Insurance costs have gone up. So they're going to be running headlong uh, once they're elected into the budget process. And uh, it is going to be, uh, you know, particularly challenging. That was certainly predicted last year, and uh, uh, it will certainly come to bear. And the, and the, the challenge is always how do, you, uh, how do you maintain a reasonable tax rate, bearing in mind affordability in our community, and at the same time raise the kind of resources to keep our city uh, in in good shape and so that continues to be a challenge and it'll continue to be a challenge for the next council coming forward as well
1: so what are you doing tonight fred what are you how are you going to uh watch this are you gonna you going to have a uh, sort of a mock party what are you what are you gonna do uh
7: you know i you know i, I generally i've had the habit of not being uh in the room when the results are coming in because it's it's just an awkward situation yeah. everyone's uh, got eyes on you and uh, so uh, we we uh, you know generally have taken a drive uh, or gone out for dinner and kind of found uh, you know amongst ourselves or among family and just surround yourself with family. and tonight, I'm doing the same. And uh, you know I'm gonna wish all of the candidates well. I, I, I congratulate them all for stepping forward. And uh, we'll all anticipate the uh, the end result. And I'm not sure what's gonna happen tonight, uh, whether I go out or whether I just stay. And watch the results on. uh, on Listen to, of course, listen to CHML, uh, or maybe cable fourteen, or wherever the results are coming in. Uh, You know, we'll uh, we'll stay tuned. But uh, I'm as anxious as anyone else to uh, to understand and appreciate what the end results going to be.
1: All right, Mayor Fred Eisenberger, City of Hamilton, uh, watching the elec- uh, election results t- tonight, like everybody else, listening to them as uh, they come forth, knowing that uh, this time it's um, not a part of it. That being said, we are going to talk to you. I know that didn't sound as good as or delicate as I would have liked to to sound, Fred. But we will <laughs> chat again before uh, before you hang it all up and such, and uh, and enjoy your night tonight, and uh, and and relax a little bit. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Thanks so much for the time.
7: You got it. I'm gonna have. I'm gonna have a gin and tonic, and uh, and, and uh, you know, toast all the candidates that step forward for this election. <laughs>
1: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Interesting uh, article from uh, Ian Bremmer uh, from the Eurasia Group uh, talking about changes in policy uh, in regard to the situation the world finds itself in uh, as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, the energy crisis that's going on over there. A quote from him saying, quote, you have the Green Party in Germany that is promoting uh, the import of uh, fracked natural gas from the united states he said countries like canada will have to accept an awful lot of natural gas and oil to continue to provide power for people around the world especially poor people around the world that have no way to continue to provide for themselves to talk about all of this and what it means uh, moving forward let's bring in ian lee associate professor sprott school of business Carleton university he's with us now ian thank you for the time i hope you're well Doing very well. Thanks, Scott. So a couple of things, obviously we have, um, uh, changes in, in what we may see in climate change policy. Uh, uh David Suzuki has been upset about that. Yeah. Uh, we have Christia Freeland changing her tone, saying darker clouds are coming. Uh, Jagmeet Singh coming out today and saying that the prime minister should do something or talk to the bank of Canada, uh, to, in order to ease these rates. Uh, what is happening here? Uh, let's start with the Jugmeet Singh, uh, 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 he's telling the Bank of Canada not to raise rates. What can, uh, What's the objective here with the letter to the Prime Minister? What could the Prime Minister do here?
0: Um, not very much, um, because, um, first off, I think Me Singh, Singh is just plain politics. Let's be very clear. Um, uh, he knows that the Bank of Canada Act, passed by Parliament, sets up the Bank of Canada at arm's length as an independent um, Crown Corporation is what it is. It's a, it's a government-owned Crown Corporation. is the structure of Bank Canada, but more importantly, it's set up to, to, to um, uh, for monetary independence because we have, we meaning Canada, the U.S., uh, U.K., other Western countries, have realized the last thing you ever want are to have politicians playing with monetary policy. That is a, I, I just can't, it's an unspeakable, unthinkable disaster. So precisely what Mr. Singh is doing is exactly what we should run in the opposite direction as if it's the bubonic plague being Mm. advocated. And I'm not being flippant. For those who say, what are you talking about? That's so extravagant. There's a person in Turkey right now. His name is President Erdogan. And he is managing and manipulating interest rates. He believes interest rates cause inflation. So he kept cutting interest rates, and he's driven inflation from very low levels all the way up to 80%. He's such a deep thinker and you know world monetary expert. Uh, and and Argentina has done this over the years. I've followed that country for a long time. And I was at the Bank of Montreal in the 70s when people were, uh, politicians were uh, sending very strong signals to the Bank of Canada. Um, Don't you dare raise interest rates. And so they kicked the can down the road, kicked it down the road, and it got worse and worse. So we have an independent monetary policy, an uh, po- uh, 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 independent central bank, as do the Americans with the Federal Reserve, and we do that for a reason. Politicians out of all the careers and all the occupations and all the professions in our country or the U.S. who are qualified to address uh, monetary policy, the least qualified, in my view, are politicians, because they will do exactly the opposite of what needs or ought to be done, generally speaking. So... As you can tell, I completely discount what he's saying. It is not supported by economic uh, theory. It's not supported by economic practice, and it hasn't been supported. But the evidence is the opposite of what he's saying. In fact, the evidence of what he's advocating has been demonstrated to be um, a complete failure in countries like Turkey, uh, like Zimbabwe when it had its hyperinflation, like Argentina, like Venezuela. There are many, many examples of that. So uh, he's playing politics with an independent body that was set up by Parliament to be independent, and he should uh, stay out of that, as should Mr. Paulyev. Uh
1: In regard to energy, uh, Bremer goes on to say in this article, an awful lot of natural gas and oil continue to provide power for people around the world, especially in underdeveloped countries. If Prime Minister Justin Trudeau doesn't accept this reality, Bremer warned, there's going to be a price to be paid uh, politically. Are Canadians going to realize that?
0: I hope so as you know because you and I have talked about this I've been making this argument for 3 or 4 years now I'm not Ian Bremmer I don't have his platform uh, but I've been arguing and I've looked at it I looked at the grid I looked at I actually used primary policy documents I looked at the Canadian Electricity Association and they said the grid is simply not ready for a massive massive increase I looked at Natural Resources Canada and right in their documents they say it's going to require a three a threefold increase or more in the electrical capacity of the grid I looked at the the data from Natural Resources Canada. 75% of all the energy in Canada is provided by natural gas or oil. And so to to displace that gargantuan amount, I mean, it's just people don't realize how much we're talking. We're talking over 200 Darlingtons, nuclear power plants. Hmm. Now, of course, we're not going to build 200 Darlingtons. And, And so I keep arguing or saying, do we really think we're going to pull the plug, shut down the pipeline, shut down oil and natural gas? And tell the fifty to fifty five percent of Canadians who heat their homes with natural gas, and may I add, all the hospitals, all the universities, all the schools in Canada. Are we really going to pull the plug on them when it's minus twenty five in January? It's just preposterous. I mean it really is nonsense. And so what Ian Bremer is stating is simply the obvious. It's going to and by the way, I'm no I don't deny climate change. Of course climate change is real. What I am saying is we've been sold snake oil that we can decarbonize in five years or seven years or 10 years or 12 years. It's going to take 50 years or more. In fact, Chris Reagan from Ecofiscal Fiscal Commission has used the figure of 50 years. I think 50 years or more to decarbonize because we've got to rebuild the grid. We've got to rip out all the gas furnaces out of every house in Canada and their oil furnaces. It's just a gargantuan task. Going to take huge amounts of money. World Bank estimates over $2 trillion, and I think they have significantly underestimated the, the true total all in cost over time.
1: And all right, it's Ian. It's going to take us a lot of time. I got to like cut you off there. We're plumb out of time. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. As always, Ian, thank you for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk 900 CA all right, on Friday night, last Friday, uh, I was honored to be part of uh, the Art Gallery of Hamilton screening A Picture My Face, The Story of Teenage Head. And uh, Douglas Aerosmith was there, the uh, the director of the film, as well as Lou Molinaro from This Ain't Hollywood, and then uh, the rest of the band. Obviously, uh, Dave Rave, uh, Steve Mann, and Gene uh, Champagne all on stage. We watched the uh, the, the documentary, the film, and then... And when it was over, uh, they all came up on stage, and we got to have a little Q&A section, which was fascinating and emotional, but what an incredible night it was uh, for those that were uh, that were there. And, uh, man, they were adding seats, trying to fit everybody in. So it was great to see uh, such a great turnout. And to talk about that and uh, the weekend that was, Dave Rave is with us from Teenage Head. Dave, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh-huh. Good to talk to you, Dave. Uh what were your thoughts on the night? It was you know, nobody really knew what to expect. What what are your thoughts on how it all went?
8: You know what? It was really special because it's the first time we all been together in that situation, uh and and talked about talked about it with uh with, with, with the public and it was it was emo- it was emotional and but at the same time uplifting because we saw the love that's in the audience and, and the Seagord's family there, his, his brothers and his sisters. And yourself, uh, you know, asking such great questions and uh, Douglas sort of explaining why he made this movie. It was really, it was amazing. I, I had an amazing night. I came out, I came out of it uplifted.
1: And uh, it's amazing because when this movie was was done, uh, it did centered on it centered very much on the late Gordy Lewis and yeah. him dealing with the loss of Frankie Venom, the lead singer. Yeah. And now to watch it after Gordy Lewis has passed, it's almost like a, a, a double blow. But you know, as I've said to people who were there, every time you watch this, you get something else out of it. You find something else. And now, considering where we are, there's something more to be learned from this isn't there
8: you are absolutely right like i haven't seen it since the the unfortunate passing of of mr gordon lewis and to see it now it it made me i think uh really appreciate who he was and his struggle like what he was dealing with day to day at the time when you're living in in the world when he was living in our world we we it's different for somehow it's like more like it it, but now seeing it is more poignant or something you you appreciate what he was trying to to do to make his music come alive for for, for his fans. You know, is it, it, it is was, it is it difficult for you to watch it, Dave? Oh yeah, it really is because you know it's, you almost you have to put yourself as another person, like like I I have to almost pretend it's not me thinking about it because I I've known him for so long. Like I think anybody in the audience, that your audience would know that I've known him since grade one. Think about that. Like that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a lifetime. And, and, you know, he was technically, much, I guess what you can call a best friend, whatever that means. It's like a best friend. And, you know, like all best friends, we had ups and downs and we, we, we got through every one of them. And uh, I just felt that he was just starting after coming out of the the COVID, you know, the, all the shutdowns and everything that he, we, you know, we were starting to look for a new chapter, you know, so It so it's tough but I can only imagine what Steve and Steve feels or his mm. family, because it's, Steve is with him right from, like as you can see in, when we were doing the show, right from playing with him since 75, 74, you know,
1: it's crazy. It'll be fascinating to see how this all moves forward, because I, yeah. from what we understand, it's still up in the air and you can understand why, yeah, but it'll be yeah. fascinating to see how it moves forward.
8: Yeah, it will. And, and, uh, you know, the questions you asked, uh, were were great because I mean the first one you asked me I never dawned to me what you were saying and so I'm almost like it it it, it surprised as I was speaking I was surprising myself as what I was saying you know what Mm -hmm. I mean I didn't realize how much inside me emotionally that I I had you know you know dealing with it so yeah you know. The deal—it it, it was incredible. What a what a great night! Fantastic. Thank you.
1: All right, so it's not over yet. Uh, you're no. getting back together for November and this get together. Talk about what's happening in the next couple of weeks.
8: Well, you know, the thing about the span teenage head is, it, is that the people decide what's going to happen, and they hmm. they they're the ones and they're the ones that have asked us to do this special uh, night for Gord. It's a sort of a, a celebration of his life. Teenage Head is, a, is an ongoing thing because cause we're all still here uh, performing and want, in, in the, for, the, for the public, really, for the people who want this music. So we're going to do a special night. We're going to have special guests. It's at, now, you have to correct me now because I always think of it as Hamlin Place. So what would you call it now?
1: First Ontario uh, Concert Hall.
8: Yeah, first Ontario concert. Hall. It's always, it's like I, I'm still saying Iverwind Stadium. So you got yeah. to No, that. that's
1: cool. <laughs> <You> gotta, <laughs> I get it.
8: I, I took me a long time to get from Civic Stadium to Iverwind. <laughs> but but yeah, no, it's going to be magical because we're in the Great Hall, and and that's a that's a that's a Hollywood place in Hamilton. It's a, it's an appropriate place for Gord to be celebrated and Teenage Head's music. So we got special guests, you know, from Hamilton. Special guests and from some from out of town, and there's going to be. You know, uh, stuff on film. Uh, I know that Gene was telling me, and Steve were telling me if they want to bring Gord's guitar and his amp to have it somewhere hmm. so you can see his amp, see his guitar um, somewhere in the building, whether we have it on stage or maybe in the, the hallway. So it, it, I would just say, everybody, come out and, and think about this. as... If, if if Teenage Head is Hamilton's band, like you know, why don't you come and celebrate Hamilton with us,
1: Gord? Gord represented Hamilton, and so was teenage Chad, You know, give us the details again, Dave. Where, when, all that sort of stuff.
8: It's yes. It's, it's November fifth, and you know, uh, and imagine it because it's, because it's uh, the first Ontario Concert Hall. It, it'll probably start the show. Will probably start at eight, but come in early and and, and see what's going on. We're going to. Um, it'll be um, yeah. It's a, it's a Saturday night, so and and the, the tickets are, I think are very reasonable, ten dollars. And the money goes for a great cause. It goes for, for the good shepherds. You know, And we're, right. we, we, we're, we're celebrating Gord. This is not about us making money. It's about celebrating Gord and celebrating Teenage Head's legacy and music and the ongoing specialness. We brought on Guitar, who's played our, our last bunch of shows. We brought on Trent Carr from the Headstones, who really, mm. you think about the Headstones, why are they called the Headstones? Teenage Head is part of it. So, yeah, you know, the celebration,
1: the celebration continues. Uh, First Ontario Concert Hall, November 5th and uh, jump on board and uh, the tribute continues. Dave, uh, thanks so much for including me in this. It was an honor to be a part and best of luck, whatever you guys decide to do. And uh, keep us abreast. We want to know.
8: We're going to be here rocking for everybody. We're not going to give up, and we're going to keep it. So thank you for having us
1: on. The Emergencies Act has been going on. It's been um, uh, compelling, to say the least, if you're into this sort of thing, to watch what's going on and just the general dysfunction of those involved. Uh, and, And many commenting last week that Doug Ford should be called Uh, to answer questions uh, specifically around a a phone conversation that uh, the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, had with Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson, uh, how they were shaming Doug Ford into, uh, I guess, participating and uh, Justin Trudeau accusing uh, Doug Ford of hiding uh, from all of this. Uh, Once that came out, certainly there was lots of chatter about the Premier should be uh, called to testify. He said he wasn't asked. It turns out he was, but they didn't want to volunteer. So now they've summoned uh, both the the former Solicitor General and the Premier. However, they are trying to get out of it. What does all this mean? Let's bring in Duff Coniger, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He's with us now. Duff, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
9: Yes, thank you. My pleasure. And I hope you're well as well.
1: Thank you so much. Your thoughts on uh, the Premier and the former Solicitor General being asked to uh, appear and surprised that they're trying to get
9: out of it? Not surprised that they're trying to get out of it, but um, they should appear. Obviously, uh, the part of the question is whether the act was needed in order to um, actually deal with the, the situation, uh, not just in Ottawa, but but uh, overall at the borders as well. And uh, the OPP is part of the regular police force that would respond to this, the Ontario police force, and so we need to hear, of course, from representatives of the Ontario government as to why they declared a state of emergency and, uh, and what they were um, talking to the OPP about at the time, because the OPP itself has said that they didn't think that they needed the extra powers, that they were able to clear the border at Windsor without them, and didn't need them to clear things out in, in Ottawa. All they needed was better cooperation from the Ottawa police.
1: Uh, So that being said, what questions do you think, and obviously we're speculating, will be asked of the Solicitor General and the Premier? Uh, We've obviously heard testimony from the OPP of them uh, attempting to help, attempting to get the Ottawa Police Service uh, some intelligence information and such. And it didn't seem that the two sides were willing to play nice. Uh, What can we ask the Premier or the Solicitor General about this?
9: I think mainly why they declared a state of emergency in Ontario. Uh, that will be the main question that was asked um, given the OPP has said that they didn't need any extra powers to clear things away at the border or in Ottawa they just needed better cooperation and not surprisingly we you know the the speculation was from what was known that it really was the Ottawa police that dropped the ball and that's what where most of the evidence is pointing to is that the Ottawa Police chief was just not cooperating and was reluctant to share uh, any of his powers or uh, or operations with either the uh, RCMP or the OPP. And that's really where the failing was. Um, and again, that gives some cover to the federal government saying, well, it was the only way to get them to cooperate and, and get the RCMP to have the direct powers that the Ottawa police was not uh, cooperating on. Uh, but also just raises the question of whether was it really necessary? Couldn't it have been done just by better policing? Do you
1: think at the end of the day, Duff, this will come down to the reason that the emergency act was called is because of the dysfunctionality within the Ottawa Police Service and the fact that there obviously was not a Plan B, but they failed to cooperate with the other services that were trying to help them. Is is that really what it is? So if you call the emergencies act, you know, you have to stand down and someone else takes control. Is
9: that what we're going to find out here? Do you think? I think so. Uh- You know, the RCMP controls the parliamentary precinct, which goes to the front gates of Parliament Hill. And then the street in front, Wellington Street, is the Ontario or the Ottawa police. And then the OPP can help, um, but is really responsible for provincial highways. Uh, They could have helped block uh, at the provincial exits into Ottawa, block people from uh, going downtown which was done, for example, in in Toronto, um, just after when there was a protest planned at Queen's Park in Toronto, Uh, they essentially stopped trucks from getting to Queen's Park and and just stopped them from setting up there. Um, They did know in advance, and they could have done that with cooperation of OPP and, and RCMP, but it is kind of strange to have the RCMP's jurisdiction extend just to the front gates of Parliament Hill but not the street in front of Parliament Hill. <laughs> I,
1: thought it, I thought it was the street. I thought it included Wellington, but I could
9: be wrong on that. I don't know. No, um, I think it, it's at least shared jurisdiction, and then you yeah. have to have cooperation. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it doesn't really make sense um, when you're trying to control protests that, that uh, if they're aimed at the government, could end up being violent at any point. And put a lot of people in danger who are uh, working around in those government buildings and and living in that area as well. So uh, I think, you know, it was unanticipated road blockades have happened before, but not a blockade that was intended to last for a long time
1: we've heard that Duff, that, that you know they weren't this is setting a precedence here but that's always why and especially if you talk to anybody in the security business that's why you always have a plan b for when something happens that you're not expecting so for me it's like well, i, I but I'm also still, they did
9: yeah. they were they were alerted that's come out yeah. from the testimony they were yeah. alerted in advance that they were planning to stay there a long time the mm-hmm. you know, usual road blockade will, will last for uh, a few days and then it's usually individuals not vehicles being removed and that's a big bit difference from an 18 wheeler putting on its uh, air brakes so Which there makes was no it very difficult to move.
1: Yeah. So there was no plan B if they did stay, and clearly they did. But then it it seems surprising that they weren't into any of the intelligence or help once it did arrive. Is there anything you can add to the dysfunctionality that happened between the police chief, a senior staff, uh, even the police services board, the mayor's office? It just it seemed that you know one group wanted to do one thing and one group wanted to do another.
9: Yeah. Well, you don't want the mayor directing police ever to do anything yeah, because that's just dangerously political. And if you allowed that allowed that precedent, then you're saying, okay, Mayor, you can tell the police who to, who to arrest and when to arrest them. And that's just obviously dangerous. So it's not really the mayor's office or the police services board, which is really just overseeing uh, operations after the fact, not directing daily operations. It really comes down to the chief and, uh, the chief's own uh, colleagues have said they made mistakes and they, they didn't do what they should have done and also that the chief was resisting cooperating and, and sharing any anything with the other police forces. So that's really where it sounds like w- was the failing. Hmm. Um, they, One last question. You know, they qu- wouldn't, wouldn't have n- necessarily known to stop them from even going downtown. Hmm. But it, once you saw them setting up trucks and putting yeah. their air brakes on, well, the tow trucks should have been called right away.
1: Uh, One last question. We've only got a few seconds left. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh said that regardless of the finding of the outcome of the Emergency Act, uh, the NDP will probably still support the Liberals. Surprise there for you.
9: No, I don't think so. Again, given what's coming out, the act was in place for nine days and uh, police did not do their job properly. How did you get them to do their job properly? Give them more powers, kind of force the cooperation on the Ottawa police. And I think most people are going to accept that explanation. Uh, uh, And, you know, people whose bank accounts were frozen, they were unfrozen later. Uh, There are still some legal issues there, but that's not an Emergencies Act issue. It's just whether it was legal to be uh, uh, transferring that money from foreign sources into this kind of protest. And that's really the legal issue there. Doug
1: Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, talking about the Emergencies Act Inquiry, and now uh, Premier Doug Ford and the former Solicitor General Sylvia Jones uh, summoned to appear. Doug, thanks for the time, as always. Be well. Thank you. Take care. Bye for now. City Hall too. That's where Scott Radley is. Uh, municipal election today. We're going to find out of a new mayor, uh, the new mayor that gets elected. Polls will close at eight o'clock. Obviously, exercise your right until then, and then, of course, coming up after six o'clock, our election special, and we will bring you the results as they come in. Scott Radley is already down at City Hall. Scott, good afternoon. Good to see you. Uh, hope. What's it like? What's the buzz like there down there now?
10: Oh, it, it, right now it is a <laughs> it is a slow boil, Scott. The <laughs> you, could cut it. Well, you can't cut it right now because slow media boil. Media people, media people are here. No, no. Uh, and, and by the way, you said Dave is in the newsroom. Dave better get his butt down here because he's on my show in about twenty minutes. So,
1: all right, um, there you go.
10: But uh, no, it, look, it's uh, it's really early, and you say polls close at eight. No, uh, right off the bat, we'll tell you that, and we'll talk about it more after I come on in my show. But because of some problems they had with some polling stations yeah. earlier, yeah. not all of them but a number of them around the city are open to as late as 9.20 now. So results are going to be coming later than we expected. We won't be getting results by the sounds of it at 8. It'll be almost an hour and a half after that before we get any.
1: All right, pretty exciting. And it seems that people are really interested in this because obviously we'll find out a new mayor. I mean, obviously that changes the, the race.
10: Uh, that and six new councillors on top of that who because six of them decided not to run again. So... There is going to be, uh, well, there is going to be a lot of new, are going to be a lot of new faces, but also there is a huge, because of that, there's a huge amount of unknown. Mm. Uh, there, You know, there are one or two, I would say, in the council races, the vacant ones especially, that I think people would look at and say, yeah, that person's probably a favorite, but there's an awful lot where, truly, Scott, uh, we're going to be all very surprised at the end of the night, not that it's a big shock as an upset, because we just we just really don't know who who's going to take it. And, you know, I I'm never sure how much weight to put on election signs. I was driving through yeah. the city today for a while
9: yeah. and
10: certain count, certain candidates have a ton of election signs mm-hmm. and you think, oh, they're going to roll. I, look, I will bet you that those people may win. I don't know. But I don't know that you can say signs equals votes. It's re- it, it, again, it's so difficult to know who is going to come out on top of some of these because there's just so many wild card unknowns because you have so few incumbents running.
1: And Hamilton making the news on a provincial level because it is a city where there is going to be lots of change, which is great. All right. Can't let you go and get started up with the election night coverage uh, until I ask you about your thoughts. Uh, the solicitor, former Solicitor General Sylvia Jones and Doug Ford, Premier, being now asked to testify, uh, to being summoned to testify at the Emergencies Act Inquiry. Initially, they apparently they were invited. They turned it down and now are being summoned. But apparently they don't want to do that either. What are your thoughts?
10: Now, okay, so I have been totally focused on the election stuff today, so you're breaking this to me, so I, I didn't yep. know this. Um, like, Doug Ford was in favor of the uh, of this, so he clearly must have thought that there was reason for the Emergencies Act to be invoked. I, I, I'm interested to hear what that is, to hear if yeah. he had heard something that someone else hadn't heard. And because as I we talked about it on the show last week and I talked about it on the show last week. To this point, it doesn't seem like we've reached the point with any testimony that takes us from giant pain in the butt, horn honking nuisance to threat to Canadian democracy.
1: Okay, and here's so my here's my latest. So here's my latest theory, and this is just from doing exactly what you're doing, just listening to people and, and, and interviewing as many people as I can. Here's what I'm realizing as I listen to the deputy chief today. Uh, it was a mess. Like, clearly there was yeah, tons of that, dysfunctionality, that, that, that uh, tons of dysfunction within the senior levels of the Ottawa Police Service. So I'm thinking, and I think this is what we're going to find out, that the Emergency Act was called because the Ottawa Police completely ignored any of the intelligence that was coming in from the other police services. And then once the whole thing did start to happen, they refused to discuss or work on a plan B. And they were very much shoving the OPP and everyone else aside I believe, this is just me, but what we're starting to see is the reason all of this was called was because everybody was trying to help the Ottawa Police Service, and the chief was pushing it all away. So they went in and they said, okay, how do we get rid of him and start all of this all over again and end it? And okay, they did that by calling the EA. Whether that's enough or not, I'm not sure. Well, I know um, you got
10: to run. Yep. But if that's the reason for it, that's a terrible terrible reason for yeah. it, and that should yeah. never be a reason. Again, I am not prejudging. I keep waiting for the evidence that says, here's what yeah. we learned that said that our democracy was going to be at, yeah. a, at risk.
1: If and is, clear, a defiant, is a defiant police chief enough to call the EA?
10: It shouldn't be, and disorganization shouldn't be, and horn talking shouldn't be. The, mm. This is set, This this is defined. The definition of the Emergency Act is set at such a high bar that it's supposed to be for the basically worst-case scenarios. And to this point, again, it was clearly a pain, but I haven't heard anything that says this is rising to the worst-case scenarios.
1: Scott Radley, live from City Hall. Uh, Everybody, all hands on deck as we watch the election results come in. Uh, Polls close at 8, and all of this starts right after the news with Scott live from City Hall. Have a great time, Scott. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live, weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word.
10: All right, you heard Scott. It's election day, so get out and vote because if you don't,
8: you can't complain if things don't go your way.